Today, we continue our series in the book of James. It's been a good series, hasn't it? I have so profited from my time in James. I believe and trust you have as well. As we continue on and enter into chapter 3 of the book of James. Today's title, Taming the Tongue, from James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Well, on April 20th, 40 miles southeast of the Louisiana coast and about 5,000 feet down below the water surface, a well that is believed to contain 50 billion gallons of oil blew out. This blowout, as you're probably aware, was a catastrophic explosion on the Deepwater Horizon offshore drilling platform killing 11 workers, injuring 17 others. It is estimated that anywhere from 5,000 barrels a day to possibly up to 100,000 barrels of oil per day. By the way, that's 4.2 million gallons of oil per day, possibly, is being spewed out into the Gulf of Mexico right now. The resulting oil slick has now covered at least 2,500 square miles of water. What has become known as the BP BP oil spill is now the largest oil spill in U.S. history. And it's not over. But perhaps what is most taunting or foreboding is just the uncertainty of the spill in terms of the ability to cap the blown-out oil well and to contain the spilled oil. To put it in the childlike words of one coastal resident regarding this blown-out well, he said, it's like having a monster under your bed. Remember those days as children, as a child? Well, James today in our text is giving us a clear warning and admonition. He is saying there is a real monster underneath your bed. There's an oil well, if blown, can do more damage than the loss of 11 lives, more damage than all the ecological contamination and economic ruin that will come from this oil spill. That oil well is called the tongue. It's called the tongue. Let's face it. Oil makes the world go around, so to speak. Right? Oil harnessed provides fuel for our engines, for our vehicles, for our lives. Likewise, it is the tongue, if properly used, gives life to many. But that same tongue, untamed, spilling over, can cause untold destruction and death. You see, today's passage, James, is deadly serious about the tongue. He wants us to be as well. Why? Because as he implies throughout this text, that our tongues must be tamed. Why? That we must show ourselves as children of God. As Al preached last week, you want a faith that works? Friend, if your tongue doesn't work, your faith doesn't work. It's as simple as that. It's no better than a blown out oil well. In fact, it's a lot worse. With that in mind, let us read our text for this morning, starting with verse 1 of chapter 3 of James. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach 
will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting up. Oh Lord, these are sobering and challenging words to our ears this morning. Lord, it is my desire, and I believe for those who are here with me, that we would have a faith that works, that we would have a tongue that works, that is employed for righteousness, for praise, and worship of our Creator. So, Lord, we need help this morning. Do what we cannot do. Tame our tongue and use it for your sanctified and glorious purposes, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's go back to verse 1 of our text this morning. James starts out with this. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. In the first part of verse 2, For we all stumble in many ways. The first point James wants to accomplish right here is to alert us to how serious, how serious it is that we control our tongue, that oil well within us. In fact, it's so serious that he warns his listeners as to the perils of teaching. Why, why does James mention teaching right off the bat here in verse 1? I believe it's because the teaching ministry primarily involves speech, use of the tongue, and it's the tongue which is the hardest parts of the body to control. In fact, it's so serious that he literally says teachers will be literally subject to greater judgment. Can I just say that sobers me this morning <laughs> as I am up here teaching and preaching to you. May this sober every preacher. May this be a word that we would do well to reflect upon Anytime we come up to speak and use our mouths. Maybe look to Matthew twelve thirty six, which says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Whew. So James is saying, you want to be a teacher? You have many words? You think teaching is glamorous? Have you ever tried to cap or contain a blown oil well a mile below the ocean surface. James is saying, think again. The czar of the Environmental Protection Agency is watching you, and you are going to trial. But James here is not only speaking to teachers alone. He's speaking to those, each one of us, all of us, who stumble in many ways. In other words, he says in verse 2, we all stumble. In other words, we all sin. 
not just teachers. And the second point is simply this. That sin of the tongue is pervasive. It's a problem for you. It's a problem for me. In the book of James so far, we've talked about the trials, right? Trials that come to us, even as believers. Trials of suffering. The trial of affluence. And even the trial of poverty. But James is saying here, there's another trial. And perhaps this is the greatest trial of all. It's the test of the tongue. We read in Romans that all of mankind is under the same indictment of sin. All of mankind is under the same indictment of the tongue. We read in Romans 3, starting at verse 10. Apostle Paul saying this, explaining the universal state and predicament that we're each in because of our sin. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And I can insert a parenthetical statement right here. So you want proof that no one's good? No, not one? Well, read the next two verses, quoted from the Psalms, verses 13 and 14, where we read, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That, my friends, is the universal predicament of sin. And nowhere is it more clearly seen nor heard than with the tongue. So why do I start here? Why do I I labor this point this morning? First of all, because it's clearly in the text that we all stumble, particularly in this way. Yet I realize some of you out there may be prone to think. You know, say, Corey... You know, I, I'm a mild-mannered person. I got problems, but, you know, I'm a relatively quiet person. I'm not much of a talker. I'm not like that loud, obnoxious person over there or over there. What well, can I just say this morning? This issue of the tongue, it's not about personality. It's not even about, per se, how many words that you speak. You see, actually, I propose that your actual speech or words may be a very small percentage of the use of your tongue. The tongue here, I believe, represents not only spoken words. We're going to talk about the spoken word this morning. Oh, but those words that are formed underneath your breath, underneath, excuse me, your breath, in your mind, by which you think and you act. Sound pretty grave? Ready to cash in your BP oil stock? That might be a good idea, by the way. But do not give up on the tongue yet. There is a silver lining here, and it begins with the second part of verse 2. James saying, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, i.e., if anyone can control the tongue, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle or control his whole body. Perfect here means complete, mature. In other words, the control of the tongue is an evidence of your spiritual maturity. But it's even more than that. Look at the second part of verse 2. If you're able to control your tongue, you are able to control your very body. You're able to control your very life. James is saying the control of the tongue is not only an evidence of, 
It is a means to spiritual maturity. So you want to mature faith this morning? I know I do. So this is it. Bible knowledge is good. Participating in the local church is good. It is right. It is biblical. But can I say, it's not enough. You may be or have been a Christian or professed Christian for many years, even a member here at Palm Vista, but you haven't seen the spiritual growth in the fruit that you desire, that you're longing for, with God in your relationships. Can I propose this? I believe for some of you, it's because you have not yet learned to control the tongue. Your tongue is not yet tamed. You may say, well, you know, I know I have a little problem here, Corey, but you know what? It's just the way I am. It's my family upbringing. It's my cultural upbringing. It's the way God made me. It's him. It's her. Do you hear what James is saying here? Control the tongue. Control your life. Win this battle, and you can win all other battles, no matter what comes after you or comes at you in life. And that leads to the two main points this morning that I think we find in our text. Number one, the power of the tongue, for good and for evil. The power of the tongue, number one. And number two, the destructiveness of the tongue. We read, starting at verse 3 of James 3, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. James here is giving us two poignant metaphors. One of the horse's bit, and number two of the ship's rudder, to illustrate the power of the tongue. Number one, to illustrate its disproportionate influence. First of all, for good. You see, the horse was the most powerful machine of James' day. Before the big earth movers and caterpillars, there was, there was the horse. A half ton of raw power. I'm told, slap 500 pounds on a healthy horse, and I'll barely twitch. Free him to run, and he can run a quarter mile in 25 seconds. But put a bit into the mouth of a horse and put a trained rider or jockey, a flyweight, no more than 100 pounds, and he or she can stop the horse. He can make that horse prance and dance simply through the bit. You want to make your life dance? Tired of being jerked around by life circumstances? Control the tongue. Number two, his second poignant metaphor was the ship. The ship was the largest moving vehicle of James's day. Massive ship, strong winds, no match for a good rudder. Control the rudder, you control the ship. Let's be honest, nothing impressive about a rudder. If you went, I suppose, to the Fort Lauderdale, it is the boat and yacht show, they'd probably show you around, show you a lot of pretty fiberglass hulls, 
probably show you and take you into some of the cabins and see the plush interior cabins and mini bars. But I suspect it's trying to sell you a yacht. They're probably not going to say, ooh, come over here and take a look at this rudder. Isn't she beautiful? No, they're not going to sell you on the rudder, are they? The rudder isn't impressive. They're pretty much the same. In fact, they're underwater. They cannot be seen. They are unnoticed. But don't even attempt to sail a boat without a rudder, or else you'll be driven wherever the wind blows if you don't capsize first. Control the rudder, control the boat. Control the tongue, control your life. What's the self-control I'm talking about? It's a self-control that pleases God. It's a food of the Spirit. But just as there is a potential for much good in the use of our tongue, so is, there, so is there the potential for much evil or destruction as well. There is, as we could say, a dark side, an evil side to the tongue of a sinner. That of which the tongue boasts is either of great things or exceedingly evil. Into that we turn to verse 5, the destructiveness of the tongue. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Now verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. What's the composite picture that James is giving us here of the tongue? It's of destruction. It's evil, it's persuasive. Notice, it's a world of unrighteousness affecting the entire course of life and staining the whole body. It's the worst case scenario of every prognosticator. It's an oil slick that can't be contained, that gets into that loop and comes around the Florida Keys and up the Atlantic into the eastern seaboard, covering not only water, but land, killing man and animal alike. That is the picture we get. And James uses a litany of phrases to press home this point. I remember when I was in grade school, at recess, we used to do what's called a dog pile. One person would yell, dog pile! And then everyone else would proceed to jump on you until you were at the bottom of the pile. <laughs> that was fun. Well, James right here, he's doing an old-fashioned dog pile right here on you and me. Let's break down that dog pile right now. Number one, the tongue is a fire. In other words, the tongue is spiritual arson. It's small, but brings a fire and brings a heat that will destroy anything in its path. Number two, it's a world of unrighteousness. What does that mean? Well, I think James is speaking of the worldly character of the tongue of a sinner. It's in our speech. See, worldliness is first perceived in the speech of a person. What's the world I'm referring to? The world is all that is profane. The world is that which is set against or opposed to Christ. 
And that which is in your heart will ush out. It will gooze. It will ooze. It will ooze and gooze and gush. It'll do all that. Right with your heart, through your mouth. How do you know if you're oozing? Look at your communication. What do you email about? What do you text about? Look at the post to your wall in Facebook or your post to Twitter. Listen to the murmurs under your breath in the car, in your home. Listen to your conversations when no one else from church is around. What do your words say, your speech? Do they smack of the world? You see, the tongue is a world of unrighteousness, and the tongue stains the whole body. It defiles us. It renders our professed faith worthless. We read in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, Christ speaking, he says these words, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles the person. You see, it's the tongue that gives voice and expression to the worldliness within us. And it defiles us. It stains us. Number four, it sets on fire the entire course of our life. This speaks of the lasting, continuing, lingering effect of the untamed tongue. We all know this. A harsh, a hasty, an ill-timed word, once it gets out, you can't take it back. It's gone. But you just want to reel it back in. You can't. The damage is done. And the effects are often lingering. In fact, they're certainly lingering. You see, the damage is not just temporal, like that of the oil spill. Eventually, the gulf, eventually, will recover. But the damage done with the tongue is spiritual. It's eternal. And it will condemn us. And fifthly, here's the fifth boy to jump on the dog pile right here. This is the one that weighs 180 pounds in grade school future lineman or sumo wrestler, okay? It's going to pounce on you right now. Number five, the tongue is set on fire by hell. This speaks to the source of the evil worlds, of the evil words and the worldliness in you. It's none other than Satan himself. You see, these misused words, this untamed tongue betrays the source of your tongue. It's Satan himself, often referred to in the scripture as the deceiver and the destroyer. Well, at some point of the dog pile, you realize you're about to suffocate, all right? You can no longer breathe. Well, James brings us to this point of near suffocation right here with these last two verses. So hang on, verses 7 and 8. He says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being Contain the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. In the words of one author, I have seen whales playing jump rope at SeaWorld. I have seen African lions cowed and submissive at a circus. I have seen a woman obediently kissed on the lips by a deadly cobra. But I have never seen a man or woman who in their own 
power can tame the tongue. As human beings, friends, we are made in the image of God. In fact, we've been given a divine mandate to rule and to subdue the earth. We might be able to fulfill this divine mandate, but you know what? We can't even tame a two-ounce slab of mucous membrane called the tongue. So James is asserting. (laughs) Sorry for that gross image, but... (laughs) Oh... It is an ugly thing. It's not. You see, the tongue in the natural is restless. This word for restless here in your text is the same Greek word used back in James 1.8. When James is describing, remember, the unstable person, the double-minded person who is unstable in all he does. Restless can also mean unstable. That describes the tongue. Restless unstable, double-minded. So is the tongue. With the untamed tongue, there is no stability and there is no peace. This past Tuesday night, Cindy and I went out on a date, our date night. As I was driving home, I was listening to some worship music in the car. I could say I was probably excited about going out on a date with my bride that evening. I was singing out Praise to the Lord. And that was singing out loud. I was, you know, banging the steering wheel a little bit, you know. That, that's pretty radical for me, you know. I'm learning here in Miami, you know, how to sing. You know, I, I, I'm watching people at the stoplight, you know, how they're doing it here in Miami, okay? So for me, I'm getting down, okay? I, I'm in the groove. You know, I'm enjoying the worship, me and the Lord, driving home. And, and I was singing that, that the last song before I turned into a neighborhood was the song, You Are Holy, Prince of Peace. We sing it here in rounds of Palm Vista. We're probably, you know, we may sing it here at the end as well. So I'm extolling God in this song. I'm extolling all his wonderful names. And then I arrived at home. I'm quickly informed that our leaky toilet has been turned back on. I had just done a little research the day prior and read that a leaky toilet can waste up to 200 gallons of water per day. So I hear that, I'm just picturing dollar bills being flushed down the toilet. I'm not a happy camper. So I quickly turn off the toilet, tape down the handles, you know, the kids will use it. And I'm simply barking out my displeasure to my kids and to my wife included. We can see where this is going, don't you? Then we jumped in the car for a date night. And it was curiously quiet. I asked my wife, So, Cindy, tell me about your day. I knew I was in trouble when she said, you know what? Why don't you tell me about your day first? That was my wise, gracious way of saying, I'm dealing with my heart right now. Why don't you talk first? I'm not a happy camper. I got the picture. I did before her repent. She was gracious. And I can say God was gracious that my Poor used words and my harshness did not define the evening. But here's the point. Here's the point. That same day, hours before I came home, I had spent multiple hours preparing a message on the tongue and how the teacher is held worshipfully accountable for that which he teaches. I came home singing Prince of Peace. But there, ain't, there was no peace when I got home. 
The next moment, I'm mouthing off like a godless man. One moment, I'm praising God. The next moment, I'm essentially cursing him. Oh, the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Let me name some of the poison for you. I have some of these in your notes. Number one, gossip. The spreading of juicy, evil reports of one another. Of course, if you've been around for a while in the church, you learn to couch gossip in a little more acceptable ways. Hey, I'm, I'm just a little concerned for so-and-so. Have you heard? Fill in the blank. Of course, the person you're talking to is not part of the solution. You're simply extending the oil slick and the damage. Perhaps our most famous, infamous rationalization for gossip, as Jim Brett mentioned two weeks ago, maybe, I'm just telling this, telling you this, so you can pray. It's just a prayer request. And so we can gossip. Poison two, flattery. To quote Pastor Kent Hughes, if gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his or her face, catch this, flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind his or her back. In other words, you flatter with insincere words. You manipulate with the tongue. Use the other person for your own selfish and evil motives and gain. Three, harshness or meanness. I believe we've spoken much about this in past sermons. Give you a personal illustration just now. Fourthly, quarreling. Quarreling. You delight in lighting matches on dry tinder. You're a pyromaniac. As James would say, you provoke and you rile people up. But you might say, oftentimes, I just do it for the fun of it. But here's the thing. No one's laughing. And the oil plumes of bitterness, of resentment, are seeping and forming just below the surface. Fourthly, or fifthly, criticism or critical judgment. You are critical of your husband, of your wife, of your children, perhaps the church, perhaps even this own message, and you want to make sure that others know about it. Poison. Next, you delight in airing your opinion. It may not be a critical judgment. You just want everyone to know in your home group exactly what you're thinking about everything. And so you dominate conversation privately, or in group settings, and the oil just keeps spewing. Your speech is reckless and hasty. You open your mouth and insert foot. You speak, and then you think. You make promises you can't fulfill, and you say things you really don't mean, or so you say. And your religion, your faith, is worthless as it says in James 1, verse 26. Might want to jot that down. James 1, verse 26. 
What else is there to say? There's many other varieties of poison. There's mocking, sarcasm, boasting. And so the list grows. And so does the oil slick. So what does God say about all this? Look at verse 10. From from the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. This ought not to be. Why? An untamed tongue not only insults others, but it also insults God himself. You see, in James' day, the emperor king would set up his statue in the cities of his realm. You see, to curse the statue of that city, if you did so, you were treated as if you had cursed the emperor himself. Why? Because the statue, who was an image of the emperor, represented the emperor himself. Do you see what's being communicated here? Every time you spew poison at someone made in God's image, you are insulting God himself, whom the image represents. You are, in fact, in effect, cursing God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing of God. Friends, this should not be. It's hypocrisy, and it's also revealing. For your words do not lie. And that leads to the last point. I believe what we're entering here is the last point. Not only the last point, but I believe in many ways the most important point. Please don't miss this. All that I have said, I think in some way or the other, you already know. You can testify to the power and destruction of the tongue. But all that's been communicated by James and believe communicated this morning is to bring you to this last point and conclusion. Number three, the truth of the tongue. Verse 11, does a spring pour forth in the same opening, both fresh and salt water? The answer is an emphatic no. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grape vine produce figs? Emphatically, the answer is no. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. In other words, an untamed tongue reveals our true nature. For Christ said so himself. We read in Matthew 7, starting with verse 15 through 20. Christ speaking, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Feeling a little desperate now? (laughs) Feeling like a false prophet? Right now, the old company, BP, have 20,000 personnel working to cap and contain this oil spill. They have a thousand 
vessels of their own alone at the disaster site. And they have yet to cap the well. Last Wednesday, they started shooting 15,000 barrels of rubber balls at the well and attempt to cap it. I'm no scientist, but I'm thinking that's a pretty last-ditch effort, okay? And it's still leaking, to my knowledge. Perhaps you've tried everything when it comes to the tongue. You've tried mud, rubber balls, (laughs) duct tape, (laughs) and nothing seems to work. Perhaps you can identify with one local Louisiana coastal resident when interviewed. He said this, speaking of of the spill. He said, if this was a hurricane, we'd know what to do. We'd board up our windows and buy our supplies. But we don't know what to do with this. Meaning the oil spill. And perhaps you say this morning, Corey, I don't know what to do with this. Pointing to your tongue. Here's the point. A quote there in your notes from J.A. Motyer. James does not simply say that the tongue is untamable, but that it cannot, it cannot be subdued, subdued by any power resident in mere human nature or possessed by a mere human being. You can't tame the tongue. You cannot control this restless poison. The answer, my friends, is ultimately outside of yourself. It's found in God, it's found in his son, and it's found in his spirit. Let's take some time, we'll have it on the overhead as well, to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Here we have a picture of the prophet that I believe is for us this morning. The prophet has received a vision of the holy and majestic God. And in this passage, in this narrative, James beholds his holy God. Seraphim are flying around the throne. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then we come to verse 5. Isaiah's response to this vision of his holy God. And he says, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Oh, but read on, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So you want your tongue to be tamed. Ask God this morning to cauterize your lips, to cleanse your mouth. You see this burning coal in this vision that Isaiah received represents the saving and cleansing work of Jesus Christ. He who was to come roughly 700 years later after this vision of the prophet Isaiah. 
You know what? James, the author of our text, he knew this Jesus well, for it was his own earthly brother of whom it was said of Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. It was Jesus from whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Do you realize Jesus was falsely accused? He was falsely tried, and he was falsely condemned. And yet, he did not open his mouth. Why? Why did not the perfect God become man? Open his mouth. Why did he not call down legions of angels in judgment upon those who falsely accused him and condemned him? Why? Because he's going to the cross to atone for your sins, to cleanse your mouth, and yes, to tame your tongue. His tongue was tame, that your tongue may be tamed. His tongue was quieted. His tongue was muted that your tongue might be tamed. That he may pour out his spirit on you. Do you realize when the church was birthed, when Christ had been crucified and rose and ascended to heaven, that he sent down his Holy Spirit to touch the tongues of his new creation at Pentecost. Acts 2, let us read. Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Do you see it, church? Oh, it it was a different fire. It wasn't a fire that came from the bowels of hell. It was a fire that came from above and came down. It was a Spirit to rest upon His new creation, the church, and that rested upon their tongues and employed their tongues for worship. Oh, what do you need this morning? For some of you, it's salvation. Salvation from your own tongue and condemnation. Oh, this morning, may I appeal to you, repent, turn from your sin, and cry out to Jesus, your Savior. For those of us who are followers of Christ, oh, what we need is a filling of the Holy Spirit to touch our bodies, to touch our tongues, and employ them for worship. With that in mind, we're going to conclude with a song of worship. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward at this time. We're going to sing a last song. We're going to sing the song that I referenced just a little earlier. You are holy, Prince of Peace. Why? 
Because I want a second chance to sing this song this week, okay? God, it's a God of second chances, okay? But the song says, you are holy. You are holy. Let's settle down here just for a second. Don't want to miss this. We're singing to the very same God that Isaiah saw in his vision. A holy God. But the second part of the song, title of the song, is you are holy, Prince of Peace. In Scripture, the antonym or the opposite of the word restless or unstable is the word peace. And it speaks of God. So we're about to sing is the God who is holy and the bringer of peace. The one who brings peace to your soul and thus brings peace to your tongue. With that, let's rise Let's sing. Let's experience this peace right now.